HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. This is Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for a couple of years now, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Each week, I record my show with a window out onto people eating pizza. Why is that important? Because this is food radio. I am excited to bring the listeners incredible stories from women in hospitality, people who care enormously about food, where it comes from, and the stories behind it. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Here's how you do it. You go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and do that right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Speaking Broadly in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today I am in Charleston, South Carolina, with an extraordinary woman who is both a musician and an incredible chef. Chidi Kumar, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for having me. So today I want to talk about... uh, your childhood, the birth of your love of food, and a little bit about the Bronx. Okay. <laughs> so can you tell me about your your family and how they started in Pittsburgh and then you were there for just a few months and then went back to India, but did arrive back in the U.S.? Yeah, um, so like, like you said, I, uh, my parents were... In America, they were um, part of the partition uh, era of India, and uh, my mom lost her parents in that um, migration um, very violently. What does that mean? That's terrible. Yeah, so my mom uh, and her family grew up in what is now Pakistan, um, 
and they're they were Hindu. Um, and you know when the border was arbitrarily drawn, and there's all these stories about how that border was drawn by the British as a part of you know what I guess and India had to suffer some. Um, we had to pay a price to get our own country back. Um, but the, the, the border was uh, drawn and all the Muslims, like the Muslims were supposed to live in Pakistan and that also meant that the Hindus were maybe not welcome there anymore. So my mom came from a very um, affluent family that was like uh, deep into like my my great grandfather had mines and like he was a you know sultan basically um, but they kind of lost everything and and they uh, you know even their neighbor who had been sort of my grandmother's like adopted brother um, you know turns out they kind of set fire to uh, my mom's house and so they had to go live in this camp for a few months and then um, they got on a train and um, it was stopped and everybody was killed except for a few kids and my mom was one of those children um, horrific 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 so long there's many stories about my parents and how they met and um, just many, uh, you know, as much as fate dealt her the cruelest of hands, she, um, the life also took care of her after this, um, uh, you know, immeasurable tragedy. Um, she met my dad and they very Where did not, they, meet? they met in school. So my mom actually got a scholarship for um, children who were orphaned in this and um, went to school in Rajasthan, which is not anywhere near where she was from. Um, and my dad happened to be like growing up in a small uh, army cantonment town where the British army was stationed. So he witnessed a lot of violence um, on from that side, just on the streets. And he was just this like uh, young nerd. And he, you know, came from, a, both my parents came from families of nine. And he was like just driven by education. He just wanted to read all the time and his family was not very supportive of that they just wanted him to go be a banker just like you know or, or be a business guy um but he was kind of like had this uh weird anglophilia as much as he hated the british and wanted them out of our country he wa he was also like reading thomas hardy and memorizing winston churchill's speeches and so they met um in graduate school and you know they weren't they couldn't date I mean and they were not of the same cast and at that time it was like all a big no-no but my mom was didn't have parents so who's gonna find her a husband and my dad's family was kind of disinterested because he was like this weirdo who wanted to get a PhD or an MD and um, they met and they just kind of like escaped together and that's how I always think of it like they're moving to America. So they get to America and my mom, I think, has like this crisis because she never really like, um, you know, got help uh, after this tragedy. She just like in, in trying to figure out how to assimilate um, all of these magical things that, you know, magical thinking was a big part of her psychological uh, framework after after her parents' loss. Um, Magical thinking meaning? Meaning uh, assigning, uh, you know, I think my, my grandmother's dying words to her were to take care of her uh, younger brother and sister, and she was nine. Um, so I think, you know, she was just 
had created this uh, life, this fantasy life about who her mother was and like what her life meant. And I'm sure there was so much survivor guilt that I can't even begin to fathom. So the, um, uh, the duality of her like wanting to have a better life, uh, wanting to have a family, but not wanting to have a family, not really understanding what motherhood is. And then the guilt of doing better than her siblings. And she was the only one who got educated in her family coming to America and cutting her hair and not wearing a sari. And like all these things were huge decisions for her that, um, had all of these really big meanings, you know, so they, they got assigned big magical, um, significances that may or may not have been like actually real but they were very real to her so they were here for five years and ended up in Pittsburgh and she kind of decided that they should go back um, because she should be suffering along with her the rest of her family and then she got pregnant with me and um, they'd already had you know my sister was uh, seven years older than I was um, so they'd already kind of not uh, not renewed their visa. So we we moved back, and the whole time, you know, I think my mom uh, and my dad regretted that decision. Um, and so every, you know, the whole time I was growing up, I was hearing we're going back to America. When we when we move back to America, when we go back to America. So this like. Uh, looming luminous goal of of the US was always in my brain so I never really sank into being Indian um, because I was always aware that we had a couple of things that were imported imported (laughs) (laughs) I you know I knew all the words to all the Beatles songs and my my classmates didn't you know that's not like what drove them but I always had this fantasy life of what the future was um, and but food was this anchor in our family my dad's mom lived with us and she hadn't been raised to be a good cook I mean she was you know married off when she was 14 but my mother for some reason had uh, internalized all of these recipes and this cooking technique like she was like me as a little child in Pakistan knew how to cook like she always hung out with the women in the uh, center of town who were at the um, the granary and the tandoor and she just knew how to cook she had this love for food and she just like literally passed it on to me so I would always be in the kitchen with them and um, eating the scrapings off the bottom of the milk pot and looking you know like the pickles and like all, all of it and when we came to America um, it was a huge disappointment to move to the Bronx because those were not the pictures that I was looking at of, of um, you know, in the Sears catalogs or whatever my mom had at that point. Um, and it was a very traumatic time for us. I mean, you know, I think anytime anybody moves to a different country, there's so many challenges. And as a kid, you don't really... Um, you're kind of isolated and your your parents are terrified and it's a really disconcerting thing to see your parents terrified and my mom kind of like was uh paralyzed with fear and depression and um con- conflict and guilt and you know um so the dinner table but one thing that we didn't compromise on or what she didn't compromise on was how we ate and the fact that she did make sure that we ate a home-cooked meal every single day and that was the one 30-minute part of our day that was normal 
and happy and sustain sustaining and I felt taken care of um and do you uh, feel like food played that role for her that if she was depressed and fearful but here's something she could control yes and it was based on nostalgia right I mean it's not like she was adapting to whatever she was finding in the markets I mean she was cooking from home Right. You were still eating essentially Indian food yes. in in the Bronx. For sure. And it's, you know, it, it's amazing to me how much she uh, just was able to channel where she came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't anything, you know, India doesn't have this, like, culture of acknowledgement of tragedy. It is just like, you don't think about the bad things, you know, you just don't mm-hmm. talk about it. Nobody in her family, in her extended family, acknowledged what happened to her. There was never any, um, or what happened to her and her brother and sister, and, like, nobody took care of that, you know? So, like, I know that making those kidney beans and uh, making that sag was a way of her speaking to her mother and remembering her childhood. Um, and that seems so powerful because you can imagine like being in the kitchen so contemplative mm-hmm. and it gives you time and space when exactly. the rest of time and space is probably busy doing caretaking yes. things that are more practical. And to just think like, where did this come from? And like, just the memory, it's so fluid. And Even if it's not um, conscious, you're not thinking about it consciously, yeah. somewhere in your mind, when you cut that ginger with, yeah. in your hand, you smell it. And, and the garam masala recipe is, you know, not something she just made up. It's like she didn't know the specs, right. but she knew the smell. And she replicated that smell. And it's funny, my, my dad and my brother are in India right now, and they went all the way up to Amritsar on the Pakistani border. And my brother, you know, WhatsApped me, and he said, it's amazing that all the food here tastes like hers. The closer I get to Pakistan, the more it tastes like her food. And I, I just, yeah, it's pretty stunning. It's so powerful also because it's all from memory. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not as though she said, I'm going to replicate this. It's not like there were the, the recipes. There were no recipes. And that's, a, that's such a gift. It is. Yeah. And I've heard you say that you've, you know, absorbed that love of food, but also understanding the food so deeply, you're able to riff on it. Right. And it's interesting that in... Uh, in her case, she wasn't really riffing. Well, she it, did end up riffing because then she? she had kids and we were in America and we were uh-huh. like, we want spaghetti. <laughs> like, you know, we want meatloaf. And so she would make kima meatloaf, you know? Right. And um, spaghetti kind of always had some cumin or something in it. So it ended up tasting like skyline chili, which I realized <laughs> later on, oh, yeah, this is this is the same Um so uh, she was a great riffer, and she would, we would go to restaurants, and she'd always have some some critique, you know, like the greens are dirty, or like you know, oh, the, I can make this better at home, or like you know, and to me, at that as a bratty little kid who wanted more than we had, you know, it's like oh, you just don't want to spend the money on going to a restaurant, like I'm never eating out with you again, you know. Did she take that criticism into the rest of? your family life or was it sort of reserved for food and restaurants oh no it was everything (laughs) (laughs) i got a 98 oh what happened (laughs) that's so frustrating god (laughs) yeah just like if they could only understand i know like could i just get a good job one time (laughs) i was thinking about that with my own mother and i realized there's this intersection of 
um, the her feeling of being valued or being valuable is saying this is how you could have done it better rather yeah. than the value of the mother being great job she's like what good is that like right, great exactly. job you don't get better everything's a teaching moment right, <laughs> right exactly. like and if you're not teaching then you're failing at, right. at, at motherhood yeah <laughs> I, I, she also has very my, in my mother's case she has these very funny moments like she you, you know always is making fun of herself like she's looking for her glasses and they're on top so she's like another teaching moment for me <laughs> um so you're love of food comes so clearly from the way they grew up. I was curious if the love of where the love of music began. It was kind of simultaneous as far as I can remember. Um, there, it would, you know, like I think of the day, like there, there's a couple of days that I remember my dad would like play hooky, which was never ever happened except for like these two days. And I remember he made like these really buttery thin omelets and I was listening to Yesterday and Today by the Beatles, and it was like that day is just in, like embranded in my in my soul, you know. That so, is you. Yeah, I mean, that exactly. Just, like, it was that moment. Exactly. That's incredible. That was you like even remember that. I, I mean, I I was looking at the cover of them sitting on the speaker, and I was looking at the speaker, and I was eating this buttery omelet, and my dad was home, and like, you know, it was like. Oh, these these guys with this amazing hair, like who you know, who are these white dudes? They're so cute. You know? I mean, I didn't know anything about like what year it was, like what when did the record come out? It just had this like magical sound. So the, the those sounds and like my dad had this real to real player that he somehow brought. Like I still I need to ask him what kind of trunk they shipped <laughs> over. Um, but you hear all the stories about the spices, but very rarely a real to real. Yeah, exactly. And heavier. He had a mixtape, but it was like this big, you know. Wow. <laughs> so he he had all of these songs, um, and I would like really wait, and I learned how to thread it really early on. So I would wait until everybody was like n- not in the room, and you know, our house wasn't big, but like in my mind, I was like alone in the room, and I would just like turn it up as far as it could go. And like I remember, my sister somehow scored a Deep Purple record, and I was just like, the I don't know, the recorded sounds were just like, oh, uh, I think you know, so much of it is fantasy, and. Um, it just gave me a feeling of like possibilities and freedom and I have the age now to look back and, and try to identify what that feeling was but it was just um, you know things from another place have always been a big draw. I wonder because you know your mother lived in that fantasy in a way mm-hmm. all the magical thinking and and yet your parents wanted you to be so practical. Yes. I wonder what type of conflict they had inside themselves. You know, my my daughter's in love with music and food. What is this? Well, you know, they we... never thought that I would parlay those into any sort of practical things, you know. And maybe I didn't. Practicality, anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think they, you know in our culture, the things that you're passionate about are not necessarily the things that you turn into your career. Um, you have a few options. You can be a doctor or a lawyer, and I guess perhaps an engineer, but you're a girl. Um, and then that's about it. Maybe a pharmacist if you didn't get into medical school. Oh, bet you know, like, <laughs> how did you toss off all the expectations that were played on actually the reverse, but the, the box that you were put in as a girl? Um, 
Well, my mom actually was really forward thinking in that way. And I think that she realized um, as being a girl who was all alone, um, had no support, nobody to tell her what her period was or, you know, um, she, I think, had this pre she probably had like resolved this conflict of education like is it appropriate for me to be even educated and i think she realized that that was her only option and she um just focused on that and that was the thing that she could control um if she could persevere she could work hard and she could overcome any anything and she was in a boarding school filled with other girls so uh, you know there was some kind of like um fortune in in that and I think she realized there were some innate things that she could just see that were unjust like why do women have to bear this burden why is it so much harder for me to uh, want to you know become a doctor you know what's the big deal so she raised uh, my sister and I with a lot of baggage but the one thing that wasn't there is like you can do you can be what you want to be but she didn't really realize what that meant to me as an American girl you know that those anything you want to be is a huge vast array of choices um I think she meant you can be a doctor if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> you took it a lot farther. So you went to college in Amherst. I did. Uh, my daughter actually is in college at Amherst um, as well. And that's where the music career began, right? Because you were at, yeah. a, I mean, I guess in air quotes, because you were working at a radio station. Yeah, just working at the college station. And, and there was something that happened in high school. Like, I just really just fell in love with uh, music and like reel to reels have always played a kind of an important role. I had one, I had a little quarter inch thing and I would record myself singing and I never was like a big singer, but I would sing along to the songs. I had like a make, I figured out how to wire this makeshift karaoke situation. So I could like sing on top of U2 songs or Duran Duran songs. Um, and I, uh, I remember I asked my mom and my dad like had already gotten a job in Florida and they were going to move like when I graduated um, if I could take a year off and just like learn how to play music and she was like what are you talking about no you're going to college and you're staying on this track and so I begrudgingly went to school and I didn't know what a major like you have to declare a major I don't know what I want to do so psychology became this thing that you know was like a compromise because my parents thought I was a really good person to talk to because they would always talk to me about their problems. They needed that. Yeah, yeah. they needed me. (laughs) Too bad that it's a kid, but he is a kid, but... Um, so I, um, I just declared psychology, even though I really kind of wanted to go into film and I really love to read and, uh, you know, so comparative literature and I, I, um, was taking a lot of like, uh, history of Western thought and all of these classes, but then the radio station was there and I worked at like, it happened to be in my dorm. Um, the first one was a pirate station and, um, so I had this like late night show and, um, yeah, it just kind of grew. I ended up working at the bigger one and did the production studio time there and learned how to like, you know, make carts and like splice tape and You seem to have an unbelievable facility with electronics. Um fixing things, I, I cords. U- yeah, I used to. I you know, I'm really rusty now, but uh, <laughs> I I I love recording. I love the studio and I, I you know, I love the whole process of taking an idea and then just 
getting weird with it. <laughs> and so um, you you ended up like meeting a band that yeah. also played in Raleigh. Right. I mean, I so I was working at the station. I ended up becoming like a promotions director person, and I was working it with a concert board. Um, on campus and UMass just happens to have this really great program um, if you want to do it and so there would be a big show in the uh, quad every year and so we were booking all these bands so I was meeting bands because I was their promotions person so they would get there and I would be like in charge of their hospitality which you know looking back like prepared me to have a music venue and there you were (laughs) right so you know like Robin Hitchcock and like all these people are coming through and I ended up just befriending some people from Raleigh and um, you know we were kind of like really into REM and like all you know all these southern bands were having their renaissance so me and my friend just like drove down to Raleigh and um, that again just felt like a little magical place that had uh, all of this potential and I think we kind of matched up in, in where we were in our growth in, in a weird poetic way. So no fear of like I have no idea what I'm doing I'm just getting in a car um, well, the the fearful part was having to move back to New York or to get a job at a record company uh, and not, like, really feeling like that was really what I wanted, you know. Uh, am I going to be a marketing person? And, you know, I didn't realize that some of the people that I was, like, uh, interacting with at these labels that I thought were super important, they were actually really douchey. And I didn't want to turn into that, and I didn't want to, like figure it out with having, you know, New York rent. And I did not like Boston, like not, no offense. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful place, but I couldn't see myself living there. Um, but there was something that allured me about the South and my parents thought I was crazy. They thought I was going to get like racially attacked. And, you know, um, they had all this fear about like, what is the South? Um, have you found that? I have not. You know, I I felt like my high school in the Bronx was way more segregated than... um, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not an issue, but it... uh, I mean, not... I haven't had any, like, racially motivated experiences. I got called a lot more epithets in New York than than I ever did. Yeah. It's a a good view of the South because, of course... Yes. You know, the... um, the reputation can be fierce and not positive. Definitely true, and uh, and a lot of it is warranted, you know. So you um, you met your husband, mm-hmm. uh, w- with whom you have the the restaurants and the bands. You have this incredible, um, very intertwined life. But I love that. You, when you met, he was your intern. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me. He probably doesn't like to talk about it. Maybe he does. I mean, um, we've always had this duality in our relationship. Um, and I think I function in dualities all the time anyway. Uh, immigrant, American, uh, you know, music and food. And then he, he and I, um, just be- we were just really good friends for a couple of years. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of working my way out of working in the company that he was interning. Um, I just thought, like, I can do this. You know, I kind of relate to the bands better than my boss does, and I'm just going to do this. And so I had friends that were at this point in their uh, musical career that they were just starting new bands at, at, at the time that I was trying to itching to, like, get out. Um, and I wasn't making a living, really. I had to wait tables to, like, supplement. Um Anyway, I, you know, 
had declared that I was going to start my own business to my parents. So I kind of had to do it. And um, we just started working on this thing together. And like he, um, he kind of gave me the encouragement and the guts to like play. Um, I was going to ask so many of the choices that you've made in your life, looking back on them from this conversation sitting here as we are in Charleston, uh, you know, it feels like they are imbued with a tremendous amount of confidence and self-knowledge. And those things are hard to get. In looking back, do you feel like you had confidence? Like, what is the thing that allowed you to, you know, make, like say to your parents, I'm starting a business. And you're like, well, I don't really know exactly what that means or what it's going to be. Like, what was that? Well, I don't know. I don't think I had any confidence. And I don't think that I had any self-knowledge, really. But I would just blurt these things out. And I don't know where they came from. And then it was like, oh, okay. I didn't know, like, when I said I'm going to open a restaurant, I didn't know what that meant. Like, Jesus, if I had, I probably would never have done it. And, you know, I I decided that I was going to open my own business. But I think, you know, looking back, I think I was just too scared to write a resume. And I was too, like, just disgusted by the whole process. I think I didn't have the confidence to go find a job. So I just decided to open a business. You know, I'm so terrified all the time that I end up making really scary choices because they seem easier in the moment. Um, So no, it's not because of self-confidence. It's more about like um, being able to do it on my own terms and if it fails and it's just my own personal little failure um now I know that that's not really what it's uh it, it, there's more to it than that but they all seem very accidental at, in the in at the time okay that's extraordinary with that thought we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about food and music how they relate and the extraordinary business that she indeed has built stay with us This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu, and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, and my guest today is Chidi Kumar, who's an extraordinary musician and chef. And it, a bunch of this seems to have happened somewhat accidentally, but fortuitously. Right. Yeah. So you now have in, um, in Raleigh... I haven't been, I can't wait to go, but a building that houses three businesses in one that right. you run. You started with a partner, but now it's you and your husband who are running it. And so you have a music venue, you have a downstairs bar, and you have a restaurant, Garland. That's correct. Okay, good. Just check all that <laughs> off. And you've united these two loves that you have that we talked about earlier in the show, which is music and food. What do you think the commonalities uh, are of music and food? Um, 
Well, we've been talking so much about memory, and I think that uh, you know those two senses, our sense of taste and our uh, our ability to like remember songs and 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 just music in general, are so linked to uh, they have transportive powers. So I think um, without getting too analytical, you know, people have songs that can just put them right back into like, you know, their first kiss or like, you know, the, the car ride to school with their mom or, um, you know, moments, monumental moments are, is the same as like, you know, that bite of chicken soup can put you in your grandmother's lap again, you know. I, I think it's, it's those two things are interesting that music and food are the only thing. It's not like, you know, you don't look at a painting and all of a sudden you, I mean, you, you might remember, right? but it's very like, that's cognitive. It's not um, heart. Um, and I think music and food are like very, they have a heart connection. And um, I, those are, we were talking about this last night, like uh, a, a, a woman here was saying that she just started like taking drum lessons. And after she sold her restaurant, I just thought, yes, that's so awesome. And as somebody who's like supposedly a musician, like I haven't picked, you know, my band hasn't practiced in five months. And I am dying inside because you know, I said, like, it's so important for us to have the things that you lose track of time. And like, you know, you were talking about my mom, like the losing yourself in doing something. And I think, you know, I, I guess painting probably is the same, but like making that connection between what's in your head and what comes out of your hands. Um, those, those two activities kind of have that same relationship and you can take an idea and then just like, you kind of become a vehicle for that creation and you're, you're helping it along, but almost sometimes it seems predetermined and you just kind of don't want to stand in the carrot's way or that song's <laughs> way, you know? That actually sounds a lot like how you've lived your entire life, right? The things come out of you and it turns out that's what I'm going to do, right? you know? And right. the food comes out and the music comes out and they're all just very, you're just very in touch with the creative part of you that allows you to move forward in each of these ways. I guess so. I never thought of myself that way, but, um, you know, uh, um, I guess I was raised to be like a fatalist, you know, um, my kismet is such a huge part of India and like, I guess I just have bad kismet or like my kismet is good. So predetermination is a, is a thing that I really, like I remember struggling with when I was taking those history classes and learning about existentialism, like wait, how do I reconcile those two concepts? And like, you actually have a choice, you know, which one you want to believe in. So um, yeah, predetermination is an interesting thing. I think it's um, really frustrating to believe that everything is predetermined. I don't know how those predetermined people don't just sit on a lawn chair and drink beer. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's how you keep the people down. <laughs> like you just, you know, you say this is this is the lot you were dealt, just live with it. That's not happening here. So, um, it, with the with the food that you're creating uh, now, even in the restaurant, because you're a home cook, and so you're it's not like you went to the culinary institute or something like that. Um, how did you figure out how to scale up your food? How to make food for a restaurant? Um, well, I had been. Uh, in my culture, we always cook for 30, you know, anyway. So like I, I always had dinner parties, like even when I was in a dorm, like I would make chicken curry because I was dying for my mom's chicken curry. And 
you know, if I'm making it for my, I'm not going to make it for myself. So I'd invite everybody on my floor to come down to the basement and eat. And when I moved to Raleigh, I would have these dinner parties. And like, uh, you know, I had friends who were working at Magnolia Grill and like working at these really great restaurants. And they'd see my knife and I learned how to cut like onions in my hand, like not use a cutting board. And they were like, you just cook for all these people with this knife. (laughs) But that was just something that kind of came naturally to me. Um, I was catering a little bit and I I like math. Um, but it did, it took a while to like, uh, realize that I had to write the recipes down. And that was the most terrifying part of it. Like I, you know, I can't cook everything. I can't do that every day. And it quickly dawned on me like, I need to learn how to standardize this stuff and um, teach people. Like it didn't occur to me that that was something that I would have to do. And now that's like the biggest part of my job is to like be able to translate a recipe and that time span becomes shorter and shorter. Now it's a part of the creative process. I'm writing, 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 writing all the time. So, um, but you, you know, terror teaches you like you got to do this. Like you can't, you just sold all of this out how many days can you make this in a row you have to figure out how to like balance keeping things fresh but also keeping it like economically sustainable and sustainable for your own body and like keeping your business open uh i just have sustainability on my head because we just finished talking about this panel but yeah you you have to you don't have much time to figure that out you got to do that like quick and what did you learn about running a business from you know the jump start that you had, like you, you started it, mm-hmm. but, um, you probably hadn't done a business plan before. No. Yeah. I, I learned everything that I know now, which is probably 8% of what I should know, um, by just doing it. And a lot of it is instinct. And, you know, um, this is a conversation that's happening a lot. Like I had so much shame about opening a restaurant without the training. Um, I didn't want to be called a chef. And then I had this whole conflict about like, will my staff treat me like a chef if I'm not a chef? And when do I get to be the chef? Uh, And these were all like self-imposed limitations, but I really wanted to earn it, you know? Um, And I'm not sure if that happened or not, but you know, at some point you do have a moment where like, oh that chief okay that's what that means and that's not a an ego thing really it shouldn't be it should be about the responsibility that you do have to keep your staff motivated and interested and keep your business open so that they can have a paycheck and so they can support their family and that they can grow um, because they're in your kitchen hopefully not for just a paycheck because it's not a big paycheck Hopefully it's something that like they're inspired by too. And to fuel their passion is your job. So that's like the biggest lesson is to like all of the things that you don't think are important, those details, those little min- minute decisions that you make every day as a business owner, it's important to, t- to share your intention and like why, why you made the choice because guess what? They might have a better idea. So I think, you know, uh, vocalizing stuff and like communicating, um, it, d- it didn't occur to me how important that was going to be. And uh, what did you do to deal with the shame? I worked my ass off. I just worked. I worked through it. Um, and I, you know, we still like, I still got here last night and I was like in this room with all of these amazing women. I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, I don't belong on this panel. Um, but 
this is what life but you me. do <laughs> well I don't know but you know you you just try to earn it and music plays an important role in the restaurant and then of course in the two venues but what role does music play when you're thinking about food? Because I think about that moment you described with your father where the two came together so perfectly. And when you're thinking about feeding people in your restaurant, what are you thinking about the soundtrack? Um, you know, it's funny, like, lately, because I'm not so immersed in music anymore, uh, and this is going to sound really psychotic, but lyrics will get into my head, and sometimes I feel like those are messages. <laughs> I really probably should be on medication. <laughs> but, you so know, far it sounds so good. <laughs> um, I I think in songs a lot, like not necessarily in a creative way, but just like the things that are, I, 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 you know, I'm really like sensitive to, and you can ask my friends and my staff, like if a song I hate comes on, I can't stand it. Like to turn the spin doctors off right now. You know, I can't <laughs> deal with it. Sorry, spin doctors fans. But, um <laughs> I, you know, I think it's, um, I like weird music and I like music that takes a chance. Um, or if it's catchy and poppy, I like that, how deliberate it is. Uh, either way, I think being deliberate is a, is the common thing that I really love about music and food. And it's not, and I don't like music that's like overproduced and, um, created to be, uh, a, a product to sell um, so commerce really needs to not be this obvious part of it uh, so the the beauty of the idea and like the honesty in that in that um, reflection of that idea I think is what uh, inspires me in both ways so like things that are recorded really carefully um, or really weirdly on purpose like why does David Bowie put psst on that <laughs> in that song over and over again because he could so yeah but if you put yourself in the seat of the diner do you think that they're hearing the music like are you thinking about how they hear while they eat I do a lot I mean the sound of our restaurant is a is, is a very um, pervasive issue because we have a music venue upstairs and then the club downstairs just start bumping at 11 o'clock on a Friday night and how do we what do we play you know does the music then compete with soundcheck uh, you know we have high ceilings how reflective it is it like can we spend the six thousand dollars that we really should like when is a good time to do that because as soon as you commit to it your ice machine and your HVAC will break and then that's really important you know you can't <laughs> you you can't that's really the yeah. restaurateur's life yeah. right right so I mean those choices but we you know uh, I think like and I also have this curse like I walk out of the kitchen and I ask anybody on my staff as soon as I walk out it'll be between songs and I'm like you guys there's no music playing what are you doing they're like it's just between songs we chill like just relax but yeah I mean you know um I got on somebody because we were he was listening to like some modern Chicago blues and I was like we're not a barbecue restaurant dude like put on something appropriate I don't want to hear like super mainstream classic rock it doesn't it's it's kind of like the aesthetics the physical aesthetics of of a restaurant should match and the way the staff dresses should match, the music should also match. And I want to go back to what you said about not having picked up an instrument and not having practiced. That must feel like half of you is missing. It does. It, I'm literally, like, aching. But I'm also 
marinating. I'm actively thinking about this. And I um, am trying to not like, like I, I will go home and play guitar at night and just, you know, even for 10 minutes just to see if I can still play. Um, and it comes back and it's like, oh, thank God. Okay, I can still kind of maybe, I don't know if I can do this on stage right now. I hope I can because we have a show coming up in September. <laughs> but um, but I'm also thinking I wonder if this is a good time to like uh, learn something new, um, figure out a different recording technique or a different way of songwriting or learn MIDI. Like, you know, maybe I can work with synths or something. I don't know. I mean, it is, you know, life presents this challenge so maybe I'll take this as an opportunity to be like a beginner at something else um, I love that idea I was just assuming that you didn't play because you just don't have time but do you feel like you could make the time for something else or to begin something new uh, you know something always has to give uh, time is not an infinite um, I would have to give something up and you know when when we do have shows and we have a deadline um, because the show is a deadline we find the time to practice on Monday nights but um, then I don't get my rest uh, then I don't cook uh, so then I'm eating takeout uh, so something you know there's always a compromise and uh, when you look ahead you know what you, I guess because things just come out of you like if I said in five years like what's the thing that you'd blurt that could be the truth in five years in five years I would like to have more time to be still uh, I'd like to do other things that are creative um, I'm not saying that that would be instead of the restaurant um, but I think in the next couple of years I have to figure out how to incorporate more things that make me happy um, which includes traveling and playing music. I mean, those are things that I can't permanently eradicate from my life. And your favorite dish to cook in the restaurant, like as you develop the menu, I'm sure there's a million things you love, but what stands out as the, the thing that you feel is like most describes your heart and, and why? I don't know if it's a dish, but um, I think making a thurka, um, a, what is that? A, a chonk, I guess, or um, like getting oil really hot and throwing the seeds into it and now I'm like I'm in love with curry leaves like that process to finish a dish is um, it connects my entire life together um, on a very literal way because that was the first like uh, hot oil thing that my mother let me do I would always boil the lentils but she never let me finish it until like grasshopper was ready <laughs> um, but to me it's also like I love the idea of being able to just finish it in the last second and take something that was really bland and that that one little thing that you can do to give it that pop and you can save it you know I love the idea of like that uh, it's almost like a what do you call it it's just like a medic you know somebody that just can come in and save your life at the very end I, I just love that idea it gives me hope that I can fuck everything up and then still fix it in the, in the last minute sorry I used the f-bomb is that okay f-bomb's okay and heritage radio network at the end of my show I have two questions one what can you teach me in words that ideally you'd actually teach me you know doing the thing well how to talk into a mic great um so most people think a mic should be straight on 
but there are so many different kinds of microphones. So most radio mics are RE20s, uh, which are, uh, it's interesting, they use the same microphone for a kick drum as you do for a, uh, like recording a radio, like all talk radio hosts have that same big mic. And you don't talk into it like this, you talk into it so sideways. You don't, you don't so you, talk no, not straight on, so it's like a 45 degree angle. And that gets so the RE20 has this like ability to have really low range and a very uh, full range of sound. Um, so you don't want your voice to sound like this, like mine normally sounds anyway. Um, so to get your throat, you don't want to approach it head on. I love that. Thank you. That's actually, that's useful for me. Folding the pants is also useful, but... Everybody I, needs to know how to fold pants. I, but approaching a mic right is great. Uh, and the last, I love to have the women pay it forward, give a shout out to another woman in the industry who they feel hasn't had enough attention. So who would that person be for you and why? I am inspired by the other women in our downtown community who own restaurants. So Angela Salamanca and Caroline Morrison come to mind. Uh, Angela What's had, the restaurant? So Angela has Centro. Um, Angela's a Colombian immigrant who has a Mexican restaurant called Centro and then a three-year-old Miss Caleria called Gallo Palan. And I think that what she has done with Gallo especially is so beautiful and really deliberate. And the space is lovely. Uh, sourcing interesting alcohol in North Carolina is a very big challenge. And she's done it remarkably well. And she makes it look super easy. And Caroline has a uh, vegetarian restaurant. Um, and uh, they're extremely busy. And she and her wife have like a very successful business um, making very increasingly creative and interesting vegetarian vegan food that is like allergy conscious. And she's, um, she's just like a great, great inspiration um, the way that they thoughtfully run their business with a lot of uh, conscience. Both of them is, is very inspiring. That's great. Thank you so much, Chi, for joining me today on Speaking Broadly. I really appreciate your time in the middle of the chaos of this um, fabulous fab conference. <laughs> Shout out to Randy Weinstein, who is the creator of the Fab Conference. It's a wonderful place where women get together uh, to be inspired and to learn from each other and to hold each other up. So um, thank you, all your listeners, for joining us this week. Um, if people want to find you, Chidi, where do they find you? Um, on social uh, at Chidi Koo at Garland Raleigh on all of the things I'm not on Facebook and I never have been uh. <laughs> and you know where to find me at Speaking Broadly and come on back next week that's where you can find me again have a great week thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.